Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. If the late great Tip O'Neill is right, all politics is local. And perhaps so is all political science. That's why I sat down with Roosevelt's own Dr. David Ferris, chair of the Department of Political Science, to get his take on the current political climate and how that is reflected in the classroom. Now, David knows his stuff. He's a successful author, sought-after speaker and columnist, and deeply committed professor who helps his students engage thoughtfully with our political system without becoming too cynical about it. We had a fun, sprawling conversation covering everything from the Electoral College to Illinois politics to the unifying yet isolating power of cell phones in the classroom. You'll enjoy what he had to say. Good morning, David. Good morning, Ali. How are you? Good. Good. Now, you have been teaching at Roosevelt University for a while, and you are a chair of a department, important department of political science. And I'm sure as you look at the nature of the politics these days, you have lots to say, (laughs) uh, especially lots to teach to our students. So let's talk just a little bit about the students, how they have changed since you were in college, and talk about a little bit of their transition in the last few years, and how do you find our students today related to your area of politics? Sure, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think I'll give a a little bit of an unexpected answer, which is I, I don't think the students have changed that much since I've been here. You know, I think particularly our students have been really sort of strong learners in the classroom, but also many of them are really motivated to get their degree, you know, and as a consequence of that, they come into the classroom and they want to do the work, and they're often juggling a variety of challenges outside of the classroom too, right? So a lot of our students work, they work part-time or they work full-time, and that has been pretty consistent since I got here. And I'd say one thing that has changed that I don't like is not really them, it's, it's the world that they inhabit, right? When I started teaching about 15 years ago, when you would walk into a classroom on the first day of class, or really when you would walk into a classroom any day, students would be talking to each other. You know, they'd be chit-chatting before class, they'd be catching up, talking about what happened over the weekend. And today, most of the time, not all the time, it's actually, I didn't have, the students were talking to each other yesterday, one of my first classes, which I thought was so great. I told them, I was like, please keep talking. <laughs> but mostly they're, they're, on, they're on their phones, right? They're, because like, you know, same same thing on the subway when you when you ride in to work, it's like nobody talks on the subway anymore, uh, and the students are sort of immersed in their digital worlds until you bring them out of it. You know, and once you bring them out of it, it's like no time has passed at all. I think students are very similar to, to what they were in the past. I think they're more into politics <laughs> than they were five or six or seven years ago, sort of during the second half of the Obama administration when I when I started here. Today, there's this great sort of ferment, and people are wondering why 
things are happening at the national level, what they can do about it, you know, what, what, what is the electoral college, you know, like students are coming in sort of primed to ask and have answered questions about the political world that I think people weren't that interested in 10 years ago, you know, people are into like, you know, regulations at the Department of Justice. <laughs> you know? It's like normal people are like really into these things that are in the news that, that I think that we just weren't talking about a while ago. So that's been really interesting to see that transition. Right. But I see, to me, that's good news. If we have our young people, and especially our students at this age, involved, asking the right questions, trying to learn from the professors, and then also being involved in the politics, that's how they pursue their goals in life. Yeah, and uh, you know, ideally, from my perspective, the students in political science would want to pursue some form of politics uh, as their vocation, and that's something that we can help the students do with the, all the variety of internships that we have here in the city. There's also a lot more interest in that than there was when I started. So suddenly, you know, interning with Congressman Quigley is like the hot thing to do in political science. You know, everybody, all the majors want to do it, and it's not, you know, it's not glamorous. Entry-level political work is not glamorous, right? But you have to start somewhere. And I've been really heartened to see an increase in the number of students who want to work directly in the political world. You know, we always have this sort of stable core of students who go to law school out of political science. But now we have, I think we have many more students who are graduating and then going to work for, for one of the two political parties or, you know, interning with the governor, interning with the campaign against the governor, you know. And, uh, and they get really great experience, really important experience. Yeah that will help them decide whether they want to do this for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned our students, especially wanting to intern with, you know, noted alumni of Roosevelt University, mm -hmm. like Congressman Quigley. And of course, he is in the House Intelligence Committee and several other key committees. And the students want to learn from that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, pretty soon we will probably have him here in one of our podcasts as a great example of somebody who is giving back and fighting a good fight. I want to go back to this notion of, you know, you started the conversation by saying the students haven't changed, okay? Because I agree with that personally, all right? The students are just as hardworking, mm -hmm. just as focused, just as amazing as when I was in college and then uh, all the decades since then. However, I look at the press, I look at the news, and I hear that the millennials have killed, and it really, really demeans yeah. this new generation of students and then future citizens coming through. Uh, give me your views on that. Yeah, I really dislike millennial bashing. You know, first of all, because the students in our classes are not millennials anymore. They're members of the next generation. A lot of millennials are like people's bosses at this point. You know, if you're if you're 30, you could be a millennial up to the age of 37 or 38 now. And so these are people who are graduating into management positions. And I also I sort of don't like the construct of generations overall. You know, it's it's a it's something that people at the research centers and the polling firms decide this is the day that this generation ended and another generation <laughs> begins. Right? I don't know how that works at the hospital where they're like, okay, this is the last one, this baby, this is it. That's it, this is the end of the millennials, right? And this next, this next baby, yeah. we gotta pick a name for this generation, but this is a new generation right here. And it doesn't really make any sense in the real world because when you see things in, in younger people that you don't like, and I, I don't see a lot in younger people that I don't like, to be honest, I mean, they grew up in the world that we made for them. You know, yeah. these are choices that we made. These are our social and political structures that we put into place and they grow up in them. And for us to be like, 
oh, you know, millennials killed uh, cars or they killed homeownership or whatever it is that millennials are supposed to have killed recently, a lot of the things that they're blamed for are really sort of economic repercussions of a very different, I think, social contract than people my age or people my parents' age grew up with, which is, you know, uh, things were more affordable. There was more public investment in things like higher education. And, our, and, and students these days, I feel like they don't have some of the advantages that I had or, they, or that my parents had. And so, you know, I'm sorry they're not buying houses, but they don't have the money to buy houses, you know, because of the world that we made for them. Right. And, you know, any time we get into stereotyping, any group of people, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's um, now age, you know, young age, millennials, Gen X, we lose context. We lose individuality. Let's go back to you and uh, some of your recent accomplishments. But meanwhile, I want to hear more about your book. It's time to fight dirty. So tell me about that and the reaction you have received both from the supporters of it, of the message, and the detractors of the message. Sure. So the book was the product of some level of despair after the 2016 presidential election. We had a, we had a great party in my building on election night that turned into the worst party that I've ever been to in my life, <laughs> and I was hosting it. And um, you know, I woke up the next day thinking, you know, the, the Democrats, which is the party that I support, although in our classrooms, of course, you have to be objective and neutral. But out in my in my life outside of the classroom, I was very disappointed about how Democrats had done in that election. It was shocking that the Electoral College misfired again, you know, awarded the presidency to the person who got fewer votes. The Republicans had the Senate, they had the House. And so it was this sort of overwhelming sense of what can we do? You know, uh, how can Democrats be more competitive in elections? How can they stop losing <laughs> elections that they actually won, right? right. And so what, what I did was I used some, some theories and ideas that, that came to me through the study of comparative politics, you know, through studying systems in, in Europe or, or Latin America or, or Asia even, and seeing, you know, which of these concepts can we apply to the American electoral system to make it more fair? So the book is called It's Time to Fight Dirty, but it's really, <laughs> it's really not about fighting dirty. It's really about how can we level the, the electoral playing field in the United States so that we don't, we're not suppressing people's votes, so that the Supreme Court isn't comprised of people that were appointed 35 years ago and, and, and no longer are, are in keeping with the vision that, that contemporary Americans have for our political order. How can we make sure that Democrats are competitive in the House? How can we get rid of gerrymandering? So these are all, all the questions that, that animated the book and that I, I tried to offer some answers to people who want to change our system. But it's so hard to amend our Constitution. So I wanted everything in the book to be something that could be accomplished by just a, you know, a Democratic majority in the, in the House and the Senate and then a Democratic president, rather than saying, like, well, we're going to amend the Constitution to end Citizens United, for example, which I don't think is realistic. So I wanted to offer some practical ideas, some of which are a little bit zany, but some of which I think could be accomplished very quickly if Democrats were to, you know, get control in D.C. again after 2020. Yeah. Having uh, reviewed your book, I understand almost every issue that you put on the table is really important for the future of our country. Okay? For everybody to fight fair. Okay? If we, you and I went and asked typical citizens out there, you know, does gerrymandering make sense? You know, the answer is no. Right. So we have examples of states that have gone to an independent panel to bring these congressional districts together and design them in a way that would make sense for the electorate. 
But I love the idea of you know slicing up California in <laughs> what seven pieces? Seven pieces, yeah. It doesn't have to be seven. I mean, it yeah. could be five. It could be ten. Okay. Um, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that yeah. the 38 million people of California, where you've spent a lot of time, yeah. uh, have the same two senators as the 700,000 people of Rhode Island or the 600,000 people of Wyoming. Wyoming, that's uh, which right. Which actually has fewer than 600,000 people. So the Senate, as an institution, gives extraordinary power to these sparsely populated states, which, you know, in a vacuum wouldn't necessarily be the hugest problem, except that our politics have aligned so that many of these smaller states are Republican-leaning, not all of them, but many of them. And then the biggest states, with the exception of Texas, are Democratic strongholds. So you have the four or five most important Democratic states. They're heavily Democratic, like Illinois and New York and California. And so their structural power in the Senate has been diminished. And that's why the, the senators that voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court represent about 44% of the population. The, the 50 senators who voted for him, and the 48 senators who voted against him represent 56% of the population. Yeah, see, that's a stunning statistic, but I don't think the founders of the Constitution were thinking that way, you know, when they designed it. I mean, the divisions at the founding of the Constitution were between the states. Like, the states in 1787 were these sort of quasi-sovereign entities that you could, yeah. you could have seen them walking away and creating a country of Rhode Island or a country of South Carolina. And so the compromise of the Constitution was designed to bring those states together, and it gave the small states more representation in the Senate than they would have gotten under a different compromise. But the, it just doesn't make any sense today, but we can't change it, right? So what you can do is you can bring new states in. You can bring Washington, D.C. as, an, as a state into the Union. You can Puerto bring Rico. Puerto Rico into the yeah. Union. Yeah. And you can also, <laughs> I don't think people know this, but you can, you can break states up. When I was a boy, <laughs> there was a referendum in New Jersey in 1980 mm -hmm. to have South Jersey, the, the seven or eight counties of South Jersey, break off and form their own state because they were tired of the tyranny of New York City. Uh -huh. you know? So I grew up uh, dreaming of being the president of the Republic of South Jersey. You know? There you go. There you go. It's not going to happen. But, was a passport uh, required for that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have okay. needed one, yeah. Now let's fast forward because, you know, this movement after the... Uh, election brought us to the midterm elections of 2018. And of course, the blue wave that you and others predicted that supposedly didn't have happened the night of the election, but actually afterwards, it did happen. Yeah. So give me your views on that and how you saw it, and especially with women and the minorities voting in record numbers. Sure. I mean, 2018 was a very unusual midterm in that turnout was the best for a midterm election that it's been in decades. So people were unusually engaged with the process. A lot of Democratic voters who would typically sit out a midterm election because they don't think it's that important, they came out. You know, So in, in some states, the turnout was 85, 90%, in some cases 100% of the 2016 turnout, which is really remarkable and really unusual in, in comparative terms. And I, I think the Democrats had a great night. You're right that it, it was not apparent on election night when it seemed like the, the Democrats were gonna get something between a 25 and 30 seat gain in the House. And then as they continued to count, again, to go back to California, <laughs> as they continued to count the votes in California, because they have this kind of strange system where you can mail your ballot in on election day, and whenever it arrives, mm -hmm. it has to be counted. So the counting in California goes on for, for weeks after the election. And it doesn't usually matter, because we, you know, in a presidential election year, there's no doubt who's gonna win California. But in a year where control of the House is at stake and, and might be close, they have to count all those votes, and it takes a while. And so people get frustrated with it. But as it turns out, Democrats won the best 
margin in the popular vote for the House in a midterm election in, in many decades and in the post-World War II era. So that, that's a remarkable achievement. But we do see, I think, some of the problems I talk about in the book, you see them in the 2018 elections. So Democrats won many millions more votes for the U.S. Senate, you know, because Democrats were, were defending a lot of their own seats, mm -hmm. right? But, but Republicans were able to pick up a couple of seats in the Senate just because of the way that the Senate, I think, structurally favors the Republicans. And they had, you know, nine or 10 pickup opportunities and they did pick up a couple of seats. So it was a great night for Democrats. It also was, to me, a stark reminder of the work that needs to be done. Like, we have to fix some of these problems. But what was really heartening was, you know, record number of women running for office and winning office. You know, the turnout was way up. Turnout among young people, among our students was way up. I taught a class, I was teaching a class during the election, on the election, on the 2018 midterm elections. I had almost 30 students in that class and it was great to see you know, people engaged in the process in real time. I assigned them all one of the big important races that they studied all semester. Mm -hmm. So that went really well. So I was happy with the results overall. I'd like to have the Senate so we don't have to worry about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health anymore. <laughs> we don't have to send her vitamins, but, uh, but that's not what happened and we'll just have to, to you know, kind of continue fighting into the next round. Yeah, and you know, uh, mentioning Justice Ginsburg, she was our guest at the American Dream conference a couple of years ago, and she was absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And not only her own message, which was super, super, super brilliant in every way, but the reaction from the young audience in front of her, mm -hmm. the cheering that was going on that reminded me of the Beatles era, when people were screaming and they were delighted by her message. And of course, you know, talking about the election, we had, you know, through your efforts, we had Eric Holder here. And part of his message was redistricting mm -hmm. and preventing tampering with the elections. Then we saw stark examples of that in the 2018. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of what uh, Eric Holder talked about when he was here is still very relevant and, and very disturbing. I mean, if you look at what happened in Georgia, where the sitting Secretary of State of the state of Georgia ran for governor and then did everything that he could to you know, throw away ballot applications from minorities, purging voters from the rolls, which you have to do, but you don't have to do it the way that Georgia does it, right? Which is designed to drive down minority turnout. And so Justice Ginsburg, who was such a wonderful speaker, I wish I, I hope I can speak like that when I'm 85. I hope I get to 85. <laughs> if I do, I, I can't imagine I'm gonna be that charming. But, you know, she's been part of a lot of battles on the Supreme Court that unfortunately, the liberals have come out mostly on the wrong side of these, of these fights about voting rights. So the Supreme Court over Justice Ginsburg's dissent upheld these voter ID laws that are in place in so many states that drive down minority turnout. And the Supreme Court has so far declined to make a meaningful ruling about gerrymandering. That may change this term, it may not. We're not really sure what's gonna happen. But the work that Eric Holder is doing and, and you know, his post-Attorney General life is really, really important. And that is you're making these state-by-state -state efforts to challenge voter ID laws, uh, to challenge gerrymandering laws, and also to challenge things like felony disenfranchisement, where in, mm -hmm. in so many states, if you go to prison for a felony, you can never vote again. Or more optimistically, you can vote again, but there's like this really onerous bureaucratic process mm -hmm. to get your vote back, which is, I think, really flies in the spirit of 
what our criminal justice system is supposed to do, which is rehabilitate you. <laughs> Not sure that's what it I'll always pay does. Your dues. Right? Yeah, right. you paid your dues. You served your time, and now what, I can never vote again. Mm -hmm. Like I'm no longer a member of this uh, of this public. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so the the accumulated result of all of these policies, which you know one of our two political parties has put into place specifically to deprive certain kinds of people of the vote is that in many places I, I think Republicans have an unfair advantage, right? If, you know, if the party that I don't support wins and they win fairly, then we have a peaceful transfer of power in this country and that's the way it works if that's what the people want. What I think is really starting to bother people, <laughs> and particularly young people, is that it seems like we know what people want in, in elections and they're just not getting it because of some of the rules and procedures that we have in yeah. place. To what extent do the, your students bring in the daily the political life that they hear about and you know, uh, weave that into the lectures and your discussion. Give me a sense of that. I mean, I try to. I try. If I'm not teaching a class that's specifically about something that happened, that's right. happening right now, and I do that a lot. So last year, I taught a class about North Korea because mm -hmm. North Korea was the was the hot international event of the year, and so I wanted students to understand what was going on. But if I'm just teaching a sort of intro to politics class, I often set aside time at the beginning of the class for the students to ask Professor Ferris, like, what is going on? Like. What? Why is the government shut down? What does that mean? How is that even possible? So I leave some time at the beginning or the end of class to talk about current politics. So it's a politics course. Like if you, you know, the subject of that day's discussion might be the British Parliament, which you know we'll get to. But the students might come in wanting to talk about the shutdown or the elections or the most recent Democrat to declare that they're running for the presidency. And I try as much as I have to get through what I wanted to get through, but I also want to leave aside some time for the students to bring politics into the classroom and, 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 and talk about it with one another so that we, you know, have a sense of, of politics as it's unfolding at the national and international level. And on that specific topic, obviously, right now, at this moment, one of the new members elected to the House was Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Mm -hmm. Who's she? I never heard of her name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so have you had a discussion about her and what she's doing just in the past few weeks as she got elected with your students. Well, she hasn't, so I just taught my first class yesterday. So okay, she didn't right. come up yesterday, but I think yeah. that she might come up today. Uh -huh. And she certainly came up in the midterm elections class that I taught last semester okay. because she's somebody who, she is a younger person. And she's, she's the youngest woman ever to be elected to the House. And she's somebody that the students can really, I think, relate to. Not just because of her age, and she, you know, she has a different kind of communication style than, than mm -hmm. some of the older politicians but because she's made such an effort to, I think, try to demystify the way that politics works in the House. So to give you an example, when they did the orientation for the new members of the House of Representatives, which, you know, everybody else is, you're supposed to shut up about it, right? You just, you go in and you listen to it and you're like, that's great. And she got on Twitter immediately and was like, why are like 15 of the 20 people that just oriented me in the House, why are they all lobbyists, right? <laughs> and so, you know, she tweeted it out and she's got 2 million followers on Twitter, right? And so immediately it becomes the discussion point of the day. Whereas 10 years ago, I think, incoming members of the House would have just accepted that lobbyists are telling them how to do their jobs. You know, Ocasio-Cortez was like, well, this is nonsense, right? Like, why, is, why, why are we doing it like this? So it's almost like, I sort of liken it to when you, when you go to a, a new country and you, you encounter sort of like norms and mores that are puzzling to you. Like, you know, when I traveled through the Middle East, you have to ask for the check at a restaurant. And like, they will not bring it to you in Egypt. You could sit for three hours, your meal's long gone, the restaurant is empty, and they will not bring you the check unless you demand it. Yeah. And you're like, why does it work this way? And so I feel like Ocasio-Cortez is going into the house like almost as 
a traveler from a foreign land of, <laughs> of where things make sense and, and Congress works for the people. And she's saying, why does it work like this? You know, why do first-year representatives not get put on any good committees? Why do you have the same people on TV all the time? Why are lobbyists doing our orientation? Why are these conservative members of the Democratic Party sitting in districts where we win by 30, 40 points? Like, why, why can't we challenge them? And so she's brought a new kind of combative, I think, spirit into the House that, at least in this moment, I think really speaks to our students. And I don't know if you saw a poll the other day, but uh, something like 70% of Democrats would, would want her to run for president if she was eligible. <laughs> so, so I think that she's, she's definitely a star in the making in the Democratic Party, and she's, you know, she's savvier about media than, than some of her colleagues, and that's paying dividends for her. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Yeah, and you know, that whole savviness of asking questions, questioning the authority, mm-hmm. which our students do as well, which Absolutely. we always appreciate because that's what we uh, aspire for the younger generation, to change the system by asking good questions, being well-informed, and saying why. Yeah. You know? I mean, what we want to cultivate in our students is not cynicism about the system. It's right. skepticism, right? right? It's, you know, there may, be, there may be some things about our society and our, our economic system and our political system that are great and that distinguish the United States in a, in a very good way from other countries. Mm-hmm. This was my icebreaker yesterday, actually, in comparative politics, where I said, you know, what do you think is something that's very different about politics in America as opposed to some other societies? You know, some of the students were like, oh, the Electoral College is so crazy. But some students were like, well, you know, we get to vote here and it means something. You know, uh, there's the alternation of power, peaceful transfer of power. So these are things that people don't take for granted. And, and so what I want my students to do is to approach systems that they that are taken for granted and look at them critically, look at them skeptically, but not assume that everything is rigged against them and there's no point in engaging in the system. I, I feel like a lot of people in my field, if they've been doing this for 30 years, they get cynical about politics and they stop believing that change is possible. And that's really the last thing that you want to convey to an 18-year-old is that you're cynical about the thing that you're teaching. Because if you're cynical about the subject that you bring into the classroom, they're never, ever going to care about it. Yeah. And, you know, the whole notion of, you know, I think the future of our nation depends on our young people being well-educated citizens. And everything that you talked about is giving them the ability to discern information, being giving them the ability to wade through the pros and cons of this system versus others and then various states and how the system works and how, you know, again, Going back to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, how you can change, how you can change the system almost instantly. Let's come back to the state of Illinois a little bit, and you know, of course, now we have a new governor. Mm-hmm. And how do you see Pritzker and his administration now changing the body politic of our state going forward? Well, I mean. What we had for the last few years was this sort of unfortunate standoff between the governor's office and the legislature. And so a lot of priorities in Illinois, important priorities like funding for higher education, funding for mental health treatment, I mean, just all sorts of things that we take for granted. These priorities suffered because the legislature and the governor could not come to an agreement about funding levels for a variety of things. 
until the last moment. <laughs> and so we now have a governor who has Democratic supermajorities in the legislature. And so in theory, in, in my field, that means you get to do whatever you want. <laughs> right? And so I think in a lot of ways, the Pritzker administration is going to have to prioritize what are the five or six promises that we made to the voters that, that, that we're going to address right away. Very relevant to us is the, is the state of higher education in Illinois. As I'm sure you know, five of the 20 universities that saw the sharpest, public universities that saw the sharpest enrollment declines um, in the past 10 years were in Illinois. Yeah. And I think three of the 20 private colleges that, that saw enrollment declines are all in it. So Illinois has this, this terrible and recent record of seeing its institutions of higher education hollowed out because of the funding crisis. 18-year-old students are choosing to go to other states rather than yeah. be here. Look, um, we were number one in the nation. Specifically in that statistic yeah. of our young people leaving the state. Yeah. So we want to be number one, but not in that statistic. Not in that statistic, no. And and getting, you know, keeping your young people in state <laughs> is very important for the future of the state because people often settle in the place where they go to college. Yeah. So if our young people are going to, to Indiana or they're going to Texas or they're going somewhere else for college, they may never come back, you know, um, and we may lose that capital of uh, highly educated activist young people may never come back here. And I don't think it's because they don't like Illinois. I don't think it's because they don't like Chicago. I think it's because funding for higher education has been neglected here. And higher education is such an incredibly important tool for the state to use to produce value for society. At research universities, that's you know scientific innovation, patents, all sorts of discoveries are made with the partnership between the state and these institutions. And when we deprive those institutions of their funding, it's going to go elsewhere. Right? It's going to go to states that do invest in their higher education system. They're going to go to Minnesota, which is colder, but which has been better about consistently funding the system. Yeah. And so if there's something that I really hope that, that Governor Pritzker follows through on, it's doing things like restoring and expanding, I hope to see expanded MAP grants uh, for students to, to attend college and lowering tuition at some of the state universities and investing in partnerships with the private colleges and universities. These things are all very important to try to convince young Illinoisans that their future is here and not in another state. Yeah. And in that regard, I think I was listening to him talk specifically at the MLK breakfast the other day, actually early this week, and he specifically mentioned MAP, Monetary Award Program, and significantly increasing that so that you know we invest mm -hmm. in our young people who can't necessarily afford to go to college. And you know, you and I know when you were talking about the students, one of the major stressors for the, our students' anxiety is a high tuition, therefore high debt, therefore they have to work harder and harder. Mm -hmm. And most people don't know, again, going to the classroom, that a typical textbook in a typical classroom is not 20 bucks anymore, it's 200 or $400 and $600. Yeah. So you can't work at a local place and make minimum wage and pay for even textbooks in college. No, I mean, it's hard to do anything on the minimum wage here or anywhere. That's why I hope that the Governor Pritzker moves forward with them, you know, raising the minimum wage uh, in the state of Illinois, too. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, I think, what, what a lot of students, not just here, but in a lot of places, have to go through to get the education that they want. You know, there's students who are homeless, who live in their cars, who then go to school. And that's just, you know, that's something that I think the richest country in the history of the world can probably do something about if we set our minds to it, if we decide that we're not going to bankrupt young people anymore. 
you know, if we're going to do some loan forgiveness. Uh, you know, we can't structure the whole, restructure the whole system overnight, but you can make the loan and grant system better. You can offer more funding for students that doesn't have to be repaid. Um, you can come up with creative ways to fund the rest of the education. And so I, I you know, it, it breaks my heart to see students who, who don't do well or they don't come back because they have to, you know, they have to pay the rent and or they're, they're supporting a family or they're coming back when they're 30 because they couldn't do it. They, they had to save up for eight years in order to be able to afford to go to college. And I think that's just not, that's not the values that I think that we want to live as a society. Right. And, you know, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, that debt is such a major burden that actually, as you mentioned, is forcing our students to, even when they graduate, postpone forming a family, mm -hmm. uh, postpone buying a house, postpone buying a car, and really pushing back on the economic side of what typically you know, people used to do in our generation and your generation and others. And that has profound economic effect on a nation as we go forward. We need to find a solution for student debt yeah, as I a mean, nation. And that's, that's such an important part of the American dream. Right? I think it was Clinton who said, you work hard, you play by the rules, and you get ahead. And I think for a lot of people, young people today, if you're 20, and you look at the future, I think you can see yourself working hard and playing by the rules but falling behind. And that's not, that's not where we want to be as a society. You know, I was lucky enough to graduate from college without debt. But if I had had a bunch of debt when I was 22, I might have made different choices. I might not have done what I really wanted to do, which was go to graduate school and become a professor. I may have been forced into other choices. And you know, maybe I would have been fine. But the fact that I didn't have to work off tens of thousands of dollars of debt when I was in my early 20s allowed me to do things that I think some, some young people aren't able to do today. And so how is it fair that I got to grow up in this system where I could graduate college without, without mountains of debt and, and young people coming up today don't have those, those same opportunities and those, those sort of the same open vista of the future that I was able to graduate college with. I feel like that's something we need to try to get back to. And you know, the, how we get back to that, you know, talk to me a little bit about the long-term impact that the Trump administration may have on our courts, on the legislature, on the administration, the elections. And then how do we change that back to a, some degree of normalcy that perhaps we might be used to? to change the trajectory of the country to a positive, a more positive way? Sure, I mean, so I think the Trump administration is negatively impacting the future in a, in a variety of different ways. I, I think the most important for our purposes is, is the budget, right? So we are running trillion dollar deficits in a time of great, or at least relatively great prosperity. So the economy has been, is on a 10 year sort of growth streak. And even now, you know, we, because the Trump administration cut taxes on the wealthy and cut taxes on corporations, we see we have this big budget deficit. And when we do have, unless we've figured out the business cycle, right? Uh, and maybe you can talk more about this than I can. But unless we figured out how to, how to break the business cycle, we will go into recession again. And at that moment, we will be very poorly equipped to, to spend money, stimulus money, to get the economy out of, out of its slump. And so I think it's very dangerous that we are running structural deficits when things are going well, and that we are running those deficits not, you could make a case for it if we were running those deficits to do things that produced public value for our society. You know, if we were running deficits to invest in education, if we were running deficits 
to, to do a trillion dollar infrastructure project to repair the, the, the crumbling infrastructure in this, in this country. You could justify it. But we're running trillion dollar deficits so that rich people can get richer. And I think that that's, it's a bad precedent to set. I think it, it's like warped priorities for our society. And if we want to do any of the things that you know, your average 2019 Democrat wants to do, have universal health care or you know, make higher education affordable or free or you know, to ask the different candidate, we're not going to be able to do any of those things <laughs> if we're running $3 trillion deficits. You know, eventually, like, eventually those deficits will catch up to us in a very destructive way. And so I think that we need to sort of reorient the ship, the economic ship of state, as soon as possible. If, unless we want to make certain things just, you know, out of reach for our own kids, which I don't think we want to do. Well, I think that uh, voters spoke in the midterms of 2018, and now let's do some fantasy politics league okay. for you yeah. of who will be drafted first in that with the first round draft, <laughs> so that we can move forward, and then talk to me about who is going to win the presidential election in 2020. Sure. So first of all, I do want to say there did used to be a thing called Fantasy Congress uh -huh. where you would draft members of Congress and then you would accumulate points based on like how many bills they sponsored or <laughs> you know, how many amendments they got through the process. But around about 2010, Congress stopped doing Congress thing. You know, we've had four incredibly unproductive Congresses mm -hmm. in a row. And so it destroyed Fantasy Congress because we, because we don't pass laws anymore. Right? <laughs> you can't run Fantasy. It's like if they didn't play the baseball games. So right? why would we still pay them? Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, a really good okay, question. Got it. So that's fixable, right? You could pass a law saying, you know, if you can't agree on a budget, then the last budget continues forward. This is what Mark Warner wants to do, Senator yeah. Mark Warner. So people in other countries are like, I just, I don't get it, you know? <laughs> why don't you just pass a law saying the government has to continue to be funded at existing levels? And then you keep arguing, but you don't, you know, prevent people from inspecting your food or, you know, force people to work without pay, which is also not in keeping with our values. So the, the election, the Democratic primary is coming up. So these things tend to start very early. So we have 18-month-long national elections in this country. And so we really, you only get about two years off from presidential politics, or at least the electoral part of presidential yeah. politics, yeah. So the first debates are in June. It forced me to say who I think the favorite is right now. I do think it's Kamala Harris, in part because I think she's a very strong candidate who appeals to a lot of different constituencies, but also because of what they did with the primary calendar. So California, California yeah. has typically voted very late in the process, so late that it doesn't influence the outcome at all. You know? <laughs> in 92, when Bill Clinton won the Democratic primary, Jerry Brown, who was the governor of California then, and became governor of California again yeah, later, which is kind of, he got kind of a cool life story. But he lost the California primary, which is very unusual to lose your home state, because it happened in June and Clinton already had the nomination wrapped up, right? So now, for the first time in a generation, Californians will have a chance to be you know, one of the decisive voices early in the campaign. And I did some research recently, and going back to the primary era in 1976, the candidates have won their home states, serious candidates who are still in the race have won their home states 37 out of 40 times and by almost 30 points. So if Kamala Harris wins California by 30 points on Super Tuesday next year, she will probably be the nominee. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's about time, after 60 other countries, uh, we would have a woman as a president. Yeah, it's something that's it's long overdue. It's about time, wouldn't you say? I think it's about time. and It's something that's long overdue. I think it will happen, right? I mean, I think 
given the number of, of women that are running for office yeah. right now, and the sort of the gender dynamics of American politics right now, where women are, are voting disproportionately for Democrats and running for office disproportionately as Democrats, the number of elected women in the Republican Party went down. And so I think that there's a natural energy, I think, you know, I don't think the, the nominee will automatically be a woman, but there, there are already four women running for the Democratic nomination. And we've never, in either party, had more than one woman seriously running for the same nomination. So we're already breaking grounds. You know, if a woman wins the nomination, I would bet on that person winning the presidency because I think that President Trump starts off this campaign as a distinct underdog, just not what the other political scientists would tell you. They would say <laughs> sitting presidents usually get reelected, but that's based on a sample size of like, you know, 10 post-war presidents. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's statistically robust. This is a guy that's never cracked 50% in any polling averages, and, which is, you know, he's the only, only president since we started doing polling who has never had, for one day of his presidency, he's never had the support of the majority of Americans. Um, I don't think he's going to start that on, on, in November of 2020. So yeah. I think he's very vulnerable. I think if the Democrats put the right candidate out there, that person has a very good chance. I'm not guaranteeing anything, but I think the person has a very good chance of, of becoming the next president. And again, I want to go back to late 1950s with Golda Meir, mm -hmm. and then Indira Gandhi, early 60s, and you know, just keep going. And many nations that we claim they don't know how to do elections and they're not democratic, you know, in South America, in Africa, elsewhere, that we make fun of and we send observers to watch their elections, yet repeatedly they've had women as their leaders, either president or prime minister. And here we are in the last election, people voted three million more for that candidate. Mm -hmm. And we know the result. So I th I'm counting like 2020. So I'm putting my dime on that, yeah. that it will be uh, one of the women senators with a track record of who will be elected this round mainly because of the Trump vulnerabilities that you're talking about. You know, we talked about David Ferris as a father, as a husband, as a professor, and of course as an author and a political scientist. And did we miss anything about you, David, that you would <laughs> like to share with our colleagues at Roosevelt's, with our students and our public? No, I think I think we've got it about covered. You know, I, I love the work that I do. I mean, I tell the students that. Uh, Why? Why is it so great to be a professor? I mean, you get paid to to kind of hang out in a classroom with young people talking about things that you care about for four or five hours a yeah. week, and then you split the rest of your time between working with great colleagues and then doing research about things that are very important to you. And so, I'm about to start a new book project about about young people in politics. Something I'm very excited about. So I, you know, it's every part of my day is divided between doing things I really like. Okay, I don't love grading, right? Nobody, no, no professor loves grading. <gasps> yes. so, so, no job is perfect. But when I was 22 and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, my dad is a community college professor, and he was always, you know, he was at my little league games, and he was a very involved father. But he also had a life's work. You know, he has something that he cares about. He runs an honors yeah. program. He's very passionate. He's still working full time. 73. He says, sometimes he says, they'll carry me out of their feet first. <laughs> I said, I hope uh, later rather than sooner. But it, but it taught me that I needed to be doing something with my life that had meaning. Yeah. And this is not the only thing that I could do that has meaning, but it is something where I get to do a variety of like pretty different things that are related, but that are, that are fascinating to me and that, yeah. that give me 
you know, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So if you had to do it over again, this is a life you would choose? I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, no, this is definitely what I would do. And it, I'm lucky enough to be at a place that supports my work and, and the work of my colleagues and where we have a great, really diverse student body. So, you know, I got a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania a long time ago, and most of my students were rich people who would go on to be investment bankers, which is fine. But at Roosevelt, it's like I'm teaching students from all over the city and the country and people that want to be community organizers or biologists or doctor. Like, there's just a much broader spectrum of futures here that keeps me on my toes, yeah. for sure. <laughs> which is a reflection of our society and the city we live in and, of course, the legacy of this university. So today we had Professor David Ferris as our guest, chair of the Department of Political Science and professor of political science, author, father, and a professor. David, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me, Ali. I had a lot of fun. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>